Well, we'll be in Ephesians Psalm, we'll be in Romans Psalm, so you can get to one of those two and be about a 50-50 what we get to first. You may have heard the phrase, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And that's usually, you know, some hidden thing and some logo, but once somebody points it out, you can never see that logo again. It's like the, the FedEx logo. I don't know if you know this, but it's got an arrow hidden inside and I didn't know that for years, and it was fine. I could look at a FedEx truck, truck and not even think about it, but now you have to bear my curse. <laughs> I learned this week about 7-Eleven, too. It, it looks, we've seen that so many times, but notice it's all uppercase except the N, and that bothers me. <laughs> this is my favorite one, though, this, this last one here. It's a drowning sign. I don't know if you can read that. It says, if you see someone drowning, and that's, that's a, supposed to be a stick figure of a person drowning, but if you text with young people, you know that LOL means laugh out loud. <laughs> so when I see it now, it says, if you see someone drowning, laugh out loud and call 911. You know, you'll never be able to look at the 7-Eleven logo or the FedEx logo, or if you're in Florida and you see this sign, You'll never view it the same way again. Why? Because once you see something, you can't unsee it. And the same thing happened to me when I began to understand the doctrine of, the un- of our union with Jesus Christ. You know, I'd been a Christian for, for uh, a few years. I was even a, a student in Bible college. I had sat through tons of chapel services. But, but in the circles I ran, and I'm not, I'm not blaming the people that taught me, but in the circles I ran, and we, we didn't talk about union with Christ but one of the seminary professors who, who, who specialized in this thing I'd never heard of called biblical counseling sort of ventured down into one of our classes, and he read Romans 6, and he said that if you are in Christ, you are no longer sl- enslaved to sin. You are free to walk in righteousness. And you know, once I saw it, I could not unsee it. I saw it all over Paul's epistles, right? He uses that phrase, in Christ, or similar phrases, over 200 times. I began to understand to to a greater degree what Jesus meant about being grafted into the vine, that he is the vine and we are the branches. I saw it in John 17 as Jesus prayed that they may be one. He's praying to the Father that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me. He prayed as well that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You know, it it allowed me to make greater sense of what Jesus was saying to Paul on the road to Damascus when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the church. But the church is in union with Jesus Christ, so to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. And I began to wonder, like, am I just seeing this because I want to see it? Or is it only Paul and Jesus who are talking about that? And then I began to teach a group of students through First Peter, and I saw it in this idea of a spiritual house, and we're living stones that are being built up into the spiritual house on the cornerstone, which is Christ. And of course, John writes about it in his epistles, to abide in Christ. And he points us forward to this marriage between Christ and his bride. You know, it's no wonder that Sinclair Ferguson said that the truth to which the New Testament constantly returns to is that we are united with Christ. 
It's all over, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. And my hope this evening is that we would sort of soak a little bit in this glorious truth of our union with Christ, that we might rejoice, that we might be encouraged together, and also that we might be equipped then to encourage our counselees with this truth. So we should probably start by thinking through a definition, right? I'm sure you can sort of piece it together through through what I've already said, but we should we should think about what is union with Christ? What are we even talking about here? You know, I, I wrote in your notes this definition. Union with, with Christ is the spiritual reality between believers and Christ through which the Christian receives all the blessings of salvation. Now, my, my notes were due well before I had to actually write my speaking notes, so I've, I've improved that definition a little bit. Here, here's what I have. Union, union with Christ is the phrase used to summarize the oneness the union, the bond, the solidarity that the Holy Spirit produces between Jesus and His people. And it is through this union that believers receive all the blessings that Christ has earned. And this is not a, a metaphor. This is a spiritual reality to which the metaphors point. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, we might think, oh, this idea of union with Christ, that's a really cool metaphor for me to understand what happened to me. No, it's, it's a spiritual reality. The vine is a metaphor. You're not a vine. The temple is a metaphor. You're not a literal temple. But you are literally, truly, though spiritually, in Christ, united with Him through faith. You are in Him, and He is in you, and He has acted for you as your representative. You know, one thing Paul uses to help us understand our union with Christ is this idea of marriage, right? In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul has described the roles of a wife and the role of a husband. He calls wives to humble submission and respect and honor towards their husbands and calls the husbands to loving and generous, self-sacrificial leadership. And he wraps up that section by saying then that we are members of that body, the body of Christ. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We, we know that passage, right? But then he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I think this idea of marriage is actually a helpful way for us to understand our union with Christ. In marriage, you have two distinct people that become one, one flesh together. The husband is still a man and the woman is still a woman, but if you're married, you are one flesh, meaning that you are related to one another in a way that you are not related to anyone else on this earth. And so we would say in union with Christ, Christ still remains Christ. And you still remain a needy sinner, but you are related to him in a unique and in a saving way. So this evening, we can't say everything that we could say about union with Christ, but I want to think through four aspects of it, and then we'll dive into some implications for counseling. The first aspect is this, in Christ means we are united to him by faith, so we receive all the blessings that Christ has earned for us. That's sort of what we were driving at with our definition earlier. You know, look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. 
Many of you know this passage well. But look in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know, you, you notice right away that Paul is about to explode with praise because of these spiritual blessings that have been poured out onto God's people. Even in, just in verse 3, blessed be who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Three times he's using this word bless or blessing. He's considering all that God's people have been given. And how do these benefits that the Father dis, uh, gives to his people, dispenses to his people, How do they arrive to us? Paul says all the spiritual blessings arrive to us in Christ, in our union with Him. Paul goes on to describe these blessings in this text. I'm not going to read the whole text, but you can sort of bounce through the text with me. He says we are chosen in Christ, in verse 4, predestined to adoption, in verse 5. We are redeemed and forgiven, in verse 7. We have the revelation of the mystery of God's plan to reconcile all things in Christ Jesus in verses 9 and 10. We have our inheritance in verse 11. We have been given the Holy Spirit as our guarantee. And these blessings, we look at that list and we think, man, surely you have to be well down the path to looking like Christ before all of these blessings are Yours. Well, that's to misunderstand our union. That's to misunderstand what it is to be in Christ. It is that if we are in Christ, if we are united with Him, then we are united with Him in everything He has accomplished. All of these spiritual blessings are for everyone who exists in Christ. On the other hand, for those who are outside of Christ, for those who are not in union with Him, and He remains outside of them, all the benefits, all the suffering, all the redemption that He has accomplished, it is of no value for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. This is, this is all or nothing. If you're in Christ, you have all the benefits. If you're outside of Christ, you have none of the benefits. You know, let me give one illustration that, that sort of helped me envision this idea of union with Christ. If you've been around Southern Hills, you, you've probably heard me use this before, but we might say, you know, we know what it is to, to follow Christ. We know what it is to be inspired by Christ. We know what it is to be under the rule of Christ. But we wrestle with this idea. What, what does it actually mean for us to be in Christ? And so I think, again, one thing that helps me think through this is, is the picture of an airplane. All right, if you're about to board an airplane to Australia, you might ask, what relationship do you need with the plane? Now, when I use this in my church, Will's not here tonight, but he was like, what? where are you going with this? Stay with me. What relationship do you need with the plane? Do you want to follow the plane, just sort of see where the plane's going and say, you know what, if I head in this general direction, I might sort of land where I need to go? Well, that's not going to be very helpful. Do you need to be inspired by the plane? Oh, look at the plane. The plane can fly. Maybe one day I will be able to fly. Do you want to be under the plane? That's not going to be very helpful when you get to 35,000 feet in elevation. What do you need? You need to be in the plane. Because if you're in the plane, what happens to the plane happens to you. 
right? If the plane makes it to Australia, you make it to Australia. If the plane blows up over whichever ocean it flies over, you blow up over whatever ocean. So to be in Christ, one of the things it means to be in Christ is that all of the blessings that Christ has earned and He deserves, they flow to you because what happened to Christ happens to you. We are counted righteous. Not because we are particularly righteous, but because Jesus is the righteous one. And we are in Christ, so we are counted righteous. We are children of God. Not because I deserve to be counted a child of God, but because Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I am in Christ. I am beloved, not because I'm typically lovable and they go, oh, of course God loves me. That's not why I'm loved by God. I'm loved by God because Jesus is the beloved one and I am in Him. We are set apart. We are sanctified. We are holy, not because we are set apart and holy, but because Christ is, and I am in Christ. We have an, an inheritance, not because I've earned the inheritance or I'm the rightful heir, but Christ is, and I am in Christ. We are in the Son of God, all because Christ deserves it, and we are in Him. We are in Christ. And that in Christ is probably the one you see most often, the one you, you probably pick up most often. It doesn't always mean it's, it's talking about union with Christ, but oftentimes it is. And it's, it's the easiest one to spot as we read our Bibles. But there, also, there are other prepositions, particularly that Paul uses, to kind of clue us into what happens in our union with Christ. We might say that one of the reasons these blessings flow to those of us who are in Christ is that he has acted as our representative. So from Romans 5, we were made transgressors, we were made sinners, sinners through Adam's sin, and we are made righteous through Christ's righteousness. So the second aspect of our union with Christ, through Christ, we are transferred from the realm of Adam to the realm of Christ, so then we are identified with um, you might flip over to Romans chapter 5. We'll kind of hang out here for a minute. Look in verses 17 through 19. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the, that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore... As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You now, if someone, if someone asks you, who is the second most important person outside of Jesus Christ to ever live? You know, what pops into your mind? Don't say it out loud because if, if you're not saying what I'm saying, it gets awkward. <laughs> I think Paul is arguing in Romans chapter 5 that the answer is Adam. Because there are two people, two men who have stood as representatives for man. When Adam acted, he acted on behalf of all those who would come after him. And when Christ acted, he acted on behalf of those who are united to him by faith. And what he does in chapter 5 is he sort of sets up this contrast. Adam is a type of Christ. Well, well, how is that? Well, it's really not, they're, they're really similar. It's that they're actually both representatives, but in their representation, they could not have been more different. Where Adam failed, Jesus has succeeded. 
If you look in verse 15, many died through Adam's transgression. He crossed the clearly revealed will of God. And the, revo- the result is spiritual death, separation from God, alienation from Him. And in Romans 1, it results in all kinds of sinful practice. Adam's sin in verse 16 brought condemnation. He represented all men, and all men are condemned because all men are represented by Adam. And in verse 17, as a result of Adam's sin, death now rules and it reigns over those who are located in Adam. But Christ, Christ is a, Adam is a type of Christ in that Christ is superior. The work of Christ, he's a greater representative because he's fixing what was broken. He conquers and reverses what was broken at the fall as a result of Adam's sin. Where many died through Adam in verse 15, grace was lavished on many through Jesus Christ. Where Adam brought condemnation in verse 16, Christ's gift covered transgression and brings righteousness. He justifies the ungodly. One trespass condemned us all, but in the face of many trespasses, Christ conquers those, offering us forgiveness and righteousness for all those who are in Christ. Where death ruled because of Adam, those who receive the righteousness of Christ, in verse 17, reign in life. Unlike Adam who who failed to exercise dominion over creation and he brought death, Paul says we will reign in life. I think this point is four. We will live in perfect obedience in God's new creation. Jesus' work is superior to the work of Adam. I like the way... Tom Schreiner said it. He said, it is one thing to blemish what is beautiful. That's what Adam did. He took what is good and he, and, he, and he cast it all into sin. It's one thing to blemish what is beautiful, but it's much harder to set straight what is already crooked. That's what Christ has done. That's what he has done as our, our representative. And so we, we identify with Christ and that he acted for us. You know, it's similar to this in Christ language that we looked at earlier. Through his actions... We are given grace, we are given righteousness, we are given life. Why? Because Christ is the representative of all those who turn to Him in faith and trust in His work. So we're not only in Christ, we are not only given grace through Christ, but but the Bible says we are crucified, resurrected, ascended, and glorified with Christ so that we are freed from sin's enslaving power. With Christ, we are crucified, resurrected, ascended, and glorified, such that Christ frees us from sin's enslaving power. You guys may well know that that he ends Romans 5 by teaching us that, you know, when the law came, it, it didn't actually restrain sin, it actually intensified sin, because man's sinful heart rebelled against the new standard, yet where sin increased, God's grace increased even more. Sin set its own trap because the more sin, the, the, the greater the grace. And so that leads Paul to anticipate an objection in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, if, if, if greater sin leads to greater grace, should we give ourselves to sin so that there may be more grace? Well, Paul's answer is, Immediate and apologetic by no means. But notice his rationale. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Now, if we're going to understand Romans 6, we have to understand the way Paul is using sin. Notice it's, it's singular. It's not plural. He isn't saying sins. You have died to sins. No, he's saying you have died to sin, so you can't remain in sin. In Romans chapter 6, sin, sin is a power. It's an, an authority. It is an enslaving king who exercises his dominion for all those who are outside of Christ. Sin dominates. It controls. It manipulates. It deceives. But Paul says you have died to sin. You're dead to that. How? Well, it's because we've died with Christ. Look there in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So his death on the cross becomes your death to the tyrannical rule and enslavement of this king called sin. Therefore, Paul's saying, you won't live in it if you're in Christ because you've died to it. The old man has been crucified in verse 6 so that, and then he says clearly what he's picturing here, so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. And not only that, not only are we dead to sin, we are no longer under sin's constraining and ruling tyrannical power. We're free. We're raised to walk in the newness of life. Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection. You are so closely linked with Christ that Paul says we are raised with him. Why? Because I'm in Christ, and Christ was raised. We don't have time to go there, but in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul goes further to even talk about the ascension of Christ, that we've been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, far above all these things that he mentioned earlier that we used to be dead in. You know, the flesh, the world, Satan's power. We used, to be, we used to be controlled by those things and dominated by those things. But we've not only been made alive and resurrected to walk in newness of life, we've been ascended to the right hand of the Father with Christ. Far above sin and Satan and this world. It's not that we don't have the flesh anymore pulling us towards temptation. It's that we are free. We are free to walk in righteousness and in obedience. So the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ are not only the means by which we're delivered from the penalty of sin, but the means by which we're freed from the very power of sin. We not only experience a changed legal status in Christ, but we experience a new nature in Christ. That's why I don't, I don't love the language like, oh, that's my old, that's my sin nature. Well, you don't have, no, you have a new nature. You have the flesh. But you have a new nature. You're, you are in Christ. And so in Christ, we don't have to bend to the whims of the flesh the way that we used to because grace now reigns in us. Our former master sin has been overthrown. Christ has won our deliverance from sin's reigning power. And we may now, in Christ, produce the fruit of righteousness. We're not helpless to fight temptation, to fight sin, to fight Satan's devices or this world's influence. Because the power that resurrected Christ from the grave is at work in us, producing in us godliness, renewing our minds after the image of Christ. 
making us into his image. So we are in Christ, and therefore we we receive all the blessings that Christ has earned. Through Christ as our representative, we are identified with him. With Christ, the enslaving power of sin is overthrown. And one more aspect of union with Christ that I'd like to, to talk through, that we are placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are incorporated into the body such that we are united then with one another. You guys are probably familiar with 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. This idea of of the body captures once again the close fellowship and intimacy that exists between God and His people. Christ and His church. He is the head and the church is the body. And in Colossians 2, that to turn away from the head, which is Christ, to turn to legalism or turn towards something like asceticism, which is kind of punishing your own body, thinking that you have what it takes in yourself to sort of discipline yourself to walk in righteousness, or turning to some kind of mystical experiences. They were sort of worshiping angels there. To, To do that, Paul says in Colossians 2, is like the body not holding fast to the head not remaining connected to the head. And so there's no life-giving nutrients there for the body if it's disconnected from the head, which is Christ. We are the body of Christ. There are other pictures in Scripture, metaphors that point to this union. We're like living stones being built up into this building. We are like branches that attach to the vine. You know, what all these images have in common is that to be related to Christ and to be incorporated into Him, whether it's to be in the body or to be a branch connected to the vine or to be a stone in this building, it's that we are organically and structurally tied together as God's people. We are joined together by the one thing that joins us all and unites us, which is Christ. One author says, there is no union with Christ that does not issue in fellowship with the church. And what God does in the New Testament, He commands His body to gather in little visible bodies called local churches. And it's in this union that Christ not only he not only identifies you with Him, which we've talked about, He not only gives you all the blessings of salvation, which we've talked about, not only frees you from the power of sin, but union with Christ places you in the community where growth is designed to happen. So when we think about these four aspects of the un- our union with Christ, it's no wonder Peter said what Jeff said earlier, that we have everything we need. He's granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So as we walk through that, you know, some of you may have been making some connections in your mind already to counseling, but but let's let's transition here and make some specific applications to biblical counseling. We'll start with a little bit of a case study. We'll think of Carl for a minute. Carl is defeated. He's discouraged. He's once again given in to what to him seems like the seemingly irresistible allure, which is pornography. He hates himself afterwards. He doesn't see a path forward where he might walk in righteousness. 
He's fearful that this sin might lead him to even more dark and deviant sexual sin. And so he calls you up as last resort, whether you're his best friend that can take him to coffee or you are a certified biblical counselor. Is there hope for Carl? Does God's word have something to say to him to address his desires, to address his sin? Of course it does. And alongside the practical help of making no provision for the flesh and something we talk about in Catholic, radical amputation, if your eye offends you, cut it out. There's also hope for Carl. You can change. You can grow. You might walk in righteousness. And the Bible's so rich and it's so full of hope that there's lots of places we could go with Carl to give him hope, but we could go to some of the passages we've looked at this evening. And we might know one of the implications, there is always hope for Carl, or we might say there's always hope for you, and there's always hope for your counselees, because we can choose in Christ not to sin and to walk in righteousness. If you're still in Romans 6, you know, you might, you might think that, you might look there, the first 10 verses, just describing who we are in Christ, Telling us who we are in Christ, describing our relationship with sin, how it's changed, the old man has been put to death, we're no longer enslaved, we're no longer bound, you've been raised to walk in newness of life, that you might walk in righteousness. After all that, Paul says, you know what, I'm going to give a command here. After describing our union with Christ, he's going to give a command, and interestingly, it's not something to stop or something to start, it's something to believe. It's something to think. So Paul tells you this glorious truth for 10 verses. And he says, now, believe it. Consider this to be true about yourself. You know, there must be something in us, and obviously there is, that doesn't automatically accept the truth and and marinate on the truth and always return to the truth, always believing it, always appropriating it to our life. No, I think Paul tells us the truth and then tells us to believe it because he knows there's a pervasive tendency in us to forget who we are in Christ Jesus. And for many of your counselees, it will be like I was. It will be a complete ignorance to who I am in Christ. Peter warned about it as well. If you are a fruitless Christian, you know, first examine yourself. He says, because you forgot that you've been purified from your former sins. You've forgotten the gospel. So you've died to sin. You are alive to God. Now believe it. Let that truth marinate in your soul and let it dawn on you afresh. One author says, Christians who have taken these privileges to heart are less and less controlled by the things that used to tyrannize them. That is, we exercise, seize, or live out our new life in Christ. So for Carl, we might say there is no sin that is outside the scope of Romans 6. Maybe it's not Carl. Maybe it's this fear of man that tends to control people. We can, we can walk in obedience and no longer be controlled by the thoughts of others because we rest secure in our union with Christ. Or it could be the angry counselee. For him to know that you don't have to be driven about by your circumstances 
But you might please and obey God because this tyrannical ruler has been overthrown in your life. And you might present yourself as an instrument of righteousness. So we want to, we want to tie into our counsel then the work of Christ, our union with Christ. So we avoid sort of just legalistic, law-giving, rule-giving. We want to tie in and point people to what Christ has accomplished. I think Paul does a master class on this in Colossians chapter 3. Let's, let's go there really quick. I'm, I'm not going to be able to say everything I'd like to say on that. I told Jeff, we better sing a couple songs when I, when I preach, because I don't know that I can go an hour like J.O. And then, of course, here we are. Look at, look at Paul, what he does. If then you've been raised with Christ, we've thought about that language, right? Then there's command, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So he's reminding you of your union with Christ, even as he's calling you to set your minds on things that are above. And then he goes into the list, right? Put to death these things. Put these things to death, the things that are earthly in you. But even after the list in verse 7, he reminds you, you you once walked in these. These used to characterize you, but not anymore. Why? Now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. It's like, command, union with Christ. Command, union with Christ. Continually pointing us back to the work of Christ. Our minds are being renewed, he says, in knowledge after the image of its creator. He does it again in verse 12. Put on, there's the command. Put on. And then he's like, well, wait, I better remind them. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He always gives you the the motivation for why you should change. The imperatives, the commands in Scripture, are driven by the work and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, uh, 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 this isn't a slide, so don't. when I say another thing, Sam, don't get ahead of me here, but you know, another implication of this is that we should seek to discern whether our counselees know Christ, whether they are in Christ. If the true motivation and power to change comes from the life-giving union with Christ, we should seek to discern whether they know the Lord, whether they are in Him. We should seek to share the gospel with an unbelieving counselee and continually remind them that their greatest need is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That ultimately, that ultimately it wouldn't benefit, benefit them to clean up their life, to kind of get past what they're dealing with if they haven't repented and turned to Christ in faith. You know, we don't have to ignore what brought them to counseling. You know, sometimes I think Jail's going to talk about the presenting problem, or at least in his breakout. You know, we, we don't have to ignore what sort of brought them to counseling. But, but you know, we don't sort of like say, oh, Carl, you just indulge in your son until you get saved. It's, but you keep bringing them back. You keep bringing them back. You keep bringing them back to their true hope, 
The source where real change can happen, which is in Christ. There's another reason there's hope. There's always hope for change because we are working towards Christ-likeness together as members of the body. This is a group effort. This is a team sports. I'll just illustrate this and and move on quickly. Again, if you're at Southern Hills, you've heard this story, but... You know, last, last spring, I think it was, me and my family were hiking. We were doing cathedral spires up here. If you're, like, just in town for the weekend, or, like, not tomorrow, but maybe Sunday afternoon, go to cathedral spires and hike it. But my boys, they, they wanted to race back to the car, but, but they came up with the race, so they made the rules. It's the boys versus me and my wife, and you had to get your whole team to the car if you were going to win. And at that time, I was just getting over COVID. I was not about to run. And, you know, my wife beats the boys because she's fast and competitive. And then all my boys get in. But I was last. So my team lost because, because the rules were you're not finished till your whole team gets across the finish line. And the Christian life is called a race in the book of Hebrews. And I think it would do us well to adopt this idea that this is a team sport. This is a team effort. This is a team race. We haven't truly run the race until we're all across. If our teammate has fallen behind us, we don't laugh and say, great, I get to go on to first place. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, it's until we all attain the unity of the knowledge of the, the faith in the Son of God. So we are in this together. And if we're thinking about Carl, we might as well say say Carl needs to see that he has a community of people called the church that are growing together. And he may be surprised to find out that one of the goals of biblical counseling is that Carl might be restored to the body, that he could become useful to the body and speaking the truth and love to others so that they might grow up into the image of Christ. Another one, there is always hope for change because this is Christ's work and He delights to use us as instruments for His glory. You know, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And I think there's an unfortunate tendency in our hearts to sort of slide our name in there and make that our motto. Without Kyle, you can do nothing. Our counselees need to be reminded that their fruit-bearing comes from their attachment to the vine, not to us as counselors or disciple-makers or friends or parents of children. It comes through Christ. And we must humble ourselves enough to acknowledge that we are merely those on the path that are pointing others to the way that truly brings change. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy. Whose energy? You might expect Paul to say, I've given all my energy. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. So in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, into Christ. It's all about Christ. Through the Holy Spirit of God, we have been united to Him by faith. What unsearchable riches we are given in Him. What hope we have to change. What hope we have to give others. 
You know, in the movie Lion King, Simba is in line, as you know. Some of you guys are like, great, now i got to go watch another movie. Simba is in line to be the next king of, of Pride Rock, but, but when he's still small, his wicked uncle, Scar, kills Simba's dad. And, and honestly, that's one of the saddest scenes in all of movie history. And he runs Simba out of the territory. And when Simba is struggling to find the courage to go back to Pride Rock and to restore order in his rightful kingdom, he meets this, this monkey named Rafiki who, who kind of shows him a memory of his dad. And his dad shows up in the clouds and he has a vision in the clouds. And Mufasa's encouragement to Simba is this, Simba, remember who you are. Remember who you are. You are a son of mine. For us tonight, and for those of us who are trying to help others, we, we, we might have that ringing in our ears. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we are humbled before your word. May you continue to use your word in our hearts. May we indeed consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the work of bestowing all the blessings of salvation on us through your Son, Jesus Christ, applied to us as we are incorporated into him through your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.